Hello everyone, welcome to Quantum Computing Now, a podcast about quantum computing basics, news, and hopefully interviews. We'll get to that later. I'm your host, Ethan Hansen. Today's episode is going to jump right into the news, covering what's been happening in the world of quantum computing since we last talked about it. A 2-qubit gate has been created that's way faster than previous 2-qubit gates, but what exactly does that mean? Nevin's law predicts double exponential growth, but is it too early for such a law? And new research says that, what, wait, quantum computers can't do literally everything. That can't be right. Well, we'll find out on today's episode. Alright, we've got a lot to cover, so let's just jump right into the news. So, a group of Australian researchers used phosphorus atoms as qubits, embedded in silicon at a distance of just 13 nanometers apart to perform square root of swap operations on those qubits with a readout fidelity of about 94%. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) The individual qubits on their own also had an extremely high fidelity of about 99%, um, but the title of this episode is 2-Qubit Speedy Gate. So where does the speedy part come in? Well, it turns out the researchers could get the distance between the qubits down to just 13 nanometers, so the operations could happen in about 800 picoseconds, or just 0.8 nanoseconds. For context, that's about 200 times faster than the previous record holder in silicon-based two-qubit operations. So going back to that, like, intro bit, we're going to break down. So a group of Australian researchers um, got the phosphorus atoms embedded in silicon at a distance of just 13 nanometers apart, um, they did that with high precision so that they could actually control how far apart they were, thus making it optimal for time of the operations, as well as for making sure that you were able to isolate those qubits well from their environment. Um, and the square root swap operations um, is a, it's almost like a, so if you have two qubits, you can flip them around, sort of flip their states, Um, but you can also sort of half flip them, and it puts them into a superposition. Um, It's a weird not full superposition, at least from my understanding of reading a couple articles. Um, If I'm wrong, feel free to correct me on Twitter or send in a voice message to anchor.fm, specifically to my podcast. Don't, like, send it to the Anchor podcast. So... And then the those the high fidelity readout of ninety four percent is after the operation, so they're able to have a above ninety percent fidelity even doing operations on these qubits, which is crazy. So I said that it's about two hundred times faster than the previous record holder in silicon based two qubit operations. Um, so for some context about just how much faster that is. So the current record holder for running a marathon is about two hours and one minute. If the next record was 200 times faster, so somebody ran a marathon 200 times faster than the current record holder, that would be them running a marathon in a little more than 36 seconds. So going from two hours and one minute to just 36 seconds. That's, that's insane. That's a, pardon the pun, that's a quantum leap in um, quantum computing technology. 
So not only did the researchers have to position the qubits themselves on a nanometer scale, but they also had to create all of the control circuitry um, around those qubits to be able to control them, uh, put them into superpositions, entangle them, and perform the operations. Um, and those also had to be placed precisely on a nanometer scale, which is just insane. It's like another whole layer of precision um, and it's a huge accomplishment. Right now, you know, of course, it's only laboratory, but things from the laboratory have a way of making themselves, uh, you know, worming into the uh, business side of things and the commercial hardware. So, I, you know, this technology has potential applications to vastly improve the speed of quantum computers. And if you can do operations at, you know, even a hundred times faster than um, current um, current silicon-based two-qubit gates, you've got the potential to do a hundred times more operations before you have your qubits decohere, which is, which would be huge. We could do things instead of uh, circuit depth of four, a circuit depth of 400 would be a, another quantum leap. Um, the researchers put out a really good video on YouTube. Um, I've linked to that in the description or the show notes. Um, I highly recommend checking that out if this is interesting to you. It really does a great job of going through and breaking down what they did. They've got nice visuals. Um, you know, some of it's a little corny with the infinity symbol. But if you can get past that, it's really interesting to see a, a visual representation. You can't do it justice with a podcast. I know as much as I love podcasts, it's really something that you've got to see. So when you find the time, check that video out. Link is in the description. All right, opinion incoming. This is, this is huge. This isn't a little improvement in performance. This is a... Like I said, it's a quantum leap, and it really goes to show the uh, the speed of progress that's being made in quantum computing. Um, so, you know, a lot of times, every year, there's a new iPhone that comes out, so that's what I'll use as this comparison. So this isn't like going from an iPhone 6 to a 7. It isn't even like going from a 5 straight to a 7 or from the, the first iPhone to a 7. This is like going all the way from the Apple Macintosh 2, which was released in 1987, straight to an iPhone X, or iPhone 10, however you want to say it. Um, that's, a, that's a huge leap. That is a leap of, you know, 40 years, if I'm doing my math right. No, 30 years. <laughs> and I'm loath to make predictions about the future, um, but this does give me hope that the naysayers will be wrong about the rate and scale of quantum computing progress moving forward. It's, you know, if more advances are made that improve things by literally two orders of magnitude, then, and that, and that rate continues, it's going to be, you know, groundbreaking, world-changing stuff. So, speaking of naysayers, let's talk about Nevin's Law. Um, it's kind of old news at this point, and even in the little icon for the show, I sort of poke fun at it um, by saying, quantum computing now, uh, now doubly exponential. 
So there was a lot of buzz recently about this. Um, a researcher at Google um, had a law named after him called Nevin's Law that essentially says that it's the, essentially the quantum computing equivalent of Moore's Law. Only this time the prediction is that quantum computing power will grow at a doubly exponential rate. And that's because the number of qubits, he said, um, they say, will grow at an exponential rate. And because quantum computing is exponentially more powerful than classical computing, the equivalent quantum computing power will grow at a doubly exponential rate. And so I was curious about how accurate this might be. And so I... Did, did a little digging. So, yeah, sure, it sounds exciting, um, but I couldn't find any sources um, for seeing this doubly exponential growth, um, so I thought I'd look at the most reliable source, Wikipedia, and plot it out myself. So in the show notes, there is a link to a Desmos graph showing this exponential or doubly exponential growth. Starting in 1995, um, there was the first operation with a qubit. Um, it was a CNOT gate that was applied to a qubit. Um, so that's my starting point. 1995 is my starting point for this doubly exponential growth. And so in all of this research, I couldn't find anywhere where it says um, how often this doubly exponential growth happens. And by how often, I mean that under Moore's law, it the number of transistors on a chip will double every two years. I couldn't find that equivalent of two years for Nevin's Law, so I said, let's be generous. More than double that two years, say, the double exponential growth happens every five years. So looking at this graph, you can see that in, uh, at, assuming that it is double exponential in that it's two to the second power to the power of however many years it has been since 1995. Um, then now, in 2019, it's been 24 years since 1995. 2 to the 2 to the 24th is about 243 million bits, is approximately what we should be seeing by the end of this year equivalent. Um, for number of qubits, that's 2 to the 24th, which is hold on, about, we should be saying about, sorry, not 2 to the 24th, 2 to the 24th divided by 5, or 2 to the 4.8, which is, we should be saying about, that's not right. Sorry, I've done my math wrong. Um, not for the rest of this, just for this segment. The rest of the double exponential growth math, I think, is right. Um, anyhow, yeah, so if we're saying that the number of the, the, the number of qubits will double every two years, then by the end of this year we should see um, chips with uh, about to the 4.8, about 28 error-corrected qubits. So not physical qubits, but error-corrected qubits. Um, and 
currently we have seen chips with up to 72 qubits as of last year with Google's bristlecone chip. Um, but I believe those aren't error corrected qubits. Those are physical qubits that can be in superpositions and entanglements um, simultaneously. But you do have to have error correcting qubits on top of that. So the, the, the point of this whole tangent that I've gone on is that under Nevin's law, we should have quantum computers by the end of this year that are approximately equal to um, 243 million bits. And that hasn't happened. We're nowhere near there. Um, yeah. there's, there's just so much error correction. There's so much um, decoherence that happens that Nevin's Law so far has not held true. Um, so m my calculations and assumptions could be wrong, um, as we have just seen. I am wrong um, often, but w at, even if I'm a little bit off or way off, we're nowhere near to even 1,000 error-corrected qubits, let alone, say, 100,000. Um, we're not getting close to that doubly exponential growth um, and it sort of hurts to say this because I really like the idea of accelerating progress in quantum computing. The issue is that a lot of people are jumping the gun on this one just a bit. I think it's too early to tell what that exponential growth is going to look like, whether it's going to be exponential at all. It might just be linear because, you know, the the growth of the number of qubits that we can have on a chip might be... Um, exponential, but then the number of qubits that we can have interconnected as well as error corrected might um, be, say, linear because the more and more qubits we add, the harder and harder it gets to keep them all stable and in superpositions and entangled. So at this point, quantum computing is new enough. I don't think that we can count on Nevin's law and a lot of the articles saying that we can, that Nevin's law is going to replace Moore's law, quantum computing is the way of the future, which I think quantum computing is the way of the future to an extent, but to say that quantum computers are going to be doing everything in the next year and that we're going to be able to, you know, cure cancer and do all these amazing things with quantum computers is unrealistic at this point. So <laughs> that's uh, bad news, so now it's time for some good news. Um, researchers have created a quantum gate that acts on qubits instead of qubits, um, leading to this great headline, forget qubits, scientists just built a quantum gate with qubits. Um, I didn't I didn't know anything about qubits until I saw that headline, so I looked into a bit. Qubits in this case, and as far as I can tell, are just physical um, objects uh, that can be put into quantum superpositions or entanglement that can have these superpositions or entanglement in multiple properties of that physical object simultaneously. So, for example, the Purdue researchers 
um, who created the study that led to that title, um, created qubits out of photons with entanglement in frequency and time. Um, I understand the entanglement in frequency, that makes more sense to me, but I'm not sure what exactly that entanglement in time means. So if someone wants to let me know, uh, reach out to me on Twitter. I'm going to just keep throwing this out there. Uh, one Ethan Hansen on Twitter or on Anchor. Go ahead and leave me a voice message if you're interested in you know letting me know, trying to explain that to me. Um, I'm also not entirely sure how this helps because all of the articles say nothing about superpositions in these domains, only entanglement. And the superpositions is what's actually going to be allowing you to create those different waveforms that you can then manipulate to do computations. So it's something I'll need to get more info on Twitter at one Ethan Hansen. Let me know if you know. Or if I said something entirely wrong, please correct me because I am sort of learning this as I am teaching. I'm learning by teaching. So now that we've got that sort of good news about qubits, which can potentially store way more information than qubits um, because they can be um, in superpositions or entangled with multiple uh, properties within the same physical sort of qubit. Um, time to get into some bad news. This is what I was talking about in that intro with com quantum computers apparently can't do literally everything, which some people would like to claim. So I've actually got two articles here that talk about limitations in the field of quantum computing. Um, one of those articles is in the physical aspect of quantum computing, and the other one is in the sort of algorithmic aspect. So I'll go ahead and start with the physical aspect. New research has shown that what had been hailed as a new way to keep qubits isolated um, and a new way to create qubits, which is known as three-dimensional three-dimensional topological insulators, it might not actually be as useful as predicted. Um, the essential takeaway from the research is that these three-dimensional topological insulators cannot be made as small as previously thought. Specifically, for these topological insulators to work properly, they require layers of graphite above and below the, to be conductive. So those layers have to be conductive. The insulator goes between those layers. And previous work in the field had said that the actual insulator part that goes between those conductive layers could be as small as 5 nanometers before you started running into issues. But these researchers from the University of Utah are saying that conductivity breaks down around 16 nanometers and you start getting what they said are energy gaps. Um, that doesn't mean that topological insulators won't ever play a role in quantum computing, just that more research is required. And that in order to make them small enough, we haven't really found a way to do that. Um, I'm not entirely sure if at 16 nanometers or slightly above 16 nanometers, we can still use topological insulators to isolate uh, qubits and use them, um, but it's certainly the smaller you can go, the better it is because the more qubits you can fit on, say, a chip um, that you could then make more smaller, which is why, you know, part of Moore's law says that the number of transistors on a chip 
it goes up exponentially as time progresses and the only way you can do that is if you make them smaller and smaller so that limit on how small you can make three-dimensional topological insulators seems to be sort of a limit to the Moore's law equivalent of quantum computing or Nevin's law whatever you want to call it so the other part is the algorithmic aspect where new work is showing that there are some starting states for which the quantum approximation optimization alg uh, quantum approximate optimization algorithm cannot reach a ground state so essentially this algorithm uses quantum computing to solve problems in the area of constraint satisfaction where different constraints are given um, different sort of energies and the closer you are to the solution, the closer those energies become to the ground state. Um, because there are starting states from which a ground state cannot be reached, that means that there are certain problems which can never be solved perfectly with a quantum computer. So what's the takeaway here? I think don't jump the gun is a good one. While quantum computing has great potential to be world-changing, there are still many issues to work out and new processes and problems to be discovered. The uh, truth is, it's just too early to say one way or the other just how much quantum computer computers will change the world around us. Regardless of that, quantum computers are really cool, and it's incredible that we can control atoms on a nanometer scale. I'm getting my, ahead of myself. This sounds like it's going to be the end of the episode. It's not. I don't want to end on that bad news of quantum, limit quantum computing limitations, so here's some good news. Researchers from the Los Alamos National Laboratory have created a quantum algorithm that could be used to help clear up our honestly muddled understanding of the quantum to classical transition. Let me break that down. Very small objects obey the laws of quantum mechanics pretty much all the time, but large ones don't. However, exactly where that transition occurs, where you go from small things that are quantum to large things that are classical, is has long remained a mystery. And it's an important mystery to solve because molecules like DNA, long protein chains, are right on that boundary between quantum and classical. And understanding the, transi the transition between those two sort of worlds of physics could help researchers study and predict the structure of new proteins how those would interact with the body to create more efficient personalized medicines, or see how changes to DNA can potentially affect um, the development of cancer or any other different, mainly medical topics, but also just as a way to understand molecules better. So the that algorithm um, could potentially be used to do this. However, in keeping with the theme of don't jump the gun, it's important to note that to study molecules with this algorithm, um, one of the researchers said that one would need a quantum computer with several hundred qubits, so it's a ways off. They seem pretty confident that it would happen in the next year um, with the way that quantum computing has gone. Um, I don't know. It, there, you know, people have said and reset this many times throughout the years, and it's it's very hard to make predictions, especially about the future. So, I will refrain from 
predicting as much as possible. And that's all I have for you this episode. If I made a mistake or you would like clarification on something, please tweet me at one Ethan Hansen or go to Anchor and leave a voice message. I really do appreciate it when I get feedback and I can work to make this a better podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the next two to four weeks.